we have been dealing with not the sayings of Jesus from the cross, not those seven statements that he makes, but we've been dealing with the other words that are spoken around the cross, the other statements that are made. Statements by soldiers, statements by the thief, statement by Pilate that was over the head of Jesus in that placard, the statement of the bystanders of the chief priest and the various religious rulers. Statements, there's really actually a lot of talk that is going on around the cross. There is a lot of conversation taking place. This evening we have the last word stated not by Christ, for he is dead. But at the cross there is another statement that is made, one for us to consider tonight. We turn to the 15th chapter starting to read at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Upon the death of Jesus around the cross, no other recorded statements are made other than this one. We hear nothing from John, we hear nothing from Mary, we hear nothing even from Mary Magdalene. We hear nothing from the bystanders. We hear nothing from the thieves who as yet have to die. We hear nothing from the chief priests. The moment of Jesus' death, there is but one voice speaking. The one who is speaking, the person who is talking, is a centurion, a Roman soldier, a Gentile, most likely a man who had been a pagan, a soldier who had worked his way up the ranks in the Roman army and had been given the assignment of being a centurion, a place of responsibility, a title. He's not just a rank-and-file soldier any longer. He is a man who has 
earn the trust of those superiors above him. A man who has excelled, perhaps on the battlefield, perhaps in other assignments that he has been given. We don't know the particular circumstances of this centurion, other than the fact he would have had to have been commended by someone to receive this special rank. Somebody has taken notice of the fine work that this man does. And I say that I state that so that you understand this man is not sloppy. This man carefully goes about his work. He would have to be somebody who is very precise, somebody who is very organized, somebody who does his duty to the utmost. It is this man, a man who is a commander of a hundred other Roman soldiers. See, that's where the name centurion comes from. Like we have a hundred years is a century, or when we celebrate that, we call it a centennial. He's a centurion over a hundred. It's quite a responsibility to be in charge of a hundred men. It's quite a responsibility that the hundred men of which this man is in charge of is in Jerusalem. Not necessarily known as the most peaceful of assignments. Not known as the place you probably really want to be in charge. These Jews are always hot. They're always angry. They're, they're always brewing for a revolt. Especially during their high holy days. Especially during the times in which they gather for these celebrations three times a year. It brings out the nationalism in these folks. There were other assignments in the Roman Empire that probably would have been much nicer. But you need a man of certain quality to be in charge of the soldiers there in Jerusalem. That's the man who speaks. This man of those excellent qualities that it would take. But he's more than that, isn't he? He's a centurion in a particular place at a particular time. He's not at the fortress of Antonio. Those of you in the Thursday morning Bible study, we just talked about that this morning as far as its proximity to the temple. He's not there. That, that's not his place of duty today. Today his assignment, today his place of duty is at the place of a skull, the place called Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion. In fact, this man isn't just there as a witness, this man is the man who is in charge. This man is the man who gives the orders, this is the man who has overseen the fact that the nails are placed precisely where they need to be placed in his in the hands of Christ and through the feet of Christ. This is the man who will have to make the determination of the death of the one who is on the cross. This is the man who is in charge. And he has seen many of these executions. And it has made him a very hard man. 
One cannot watch these executions without becoming crusty. You can't be an emotional sap and do this job. You've got to be tough. You've got to be tough as nails. You are going to hear men cry out in anguish. And if you're the emotional type, you're going to want to end this all too quickly. You're going to want to draw your sword and just pierce the guy and say, be done with this. I can't stand to hear this fellow. Besides all the weeping and wailing that is going on, taking place. Oftentimes at these executions, so we read, there would be the execution of prisoners who perhaps it wasn't all that obvious they were guilty of the crime that Rome is accusing them of. Perhaps there were charges that were kind of leveled against an individual because, well, you know, they're a little bit of an insurrectionist and we better teach these people a lesson. So, for the lack of a better term, trumped up charges were brought up. And so there'd be many people, not there deriding, not there accusing, there would be people there wailing over the death of this person on the cross. This guy has to live through this. He has to be hard. He has to be able to tune out. And yet he has to be able to take in all that happens because it's all under his duty. This man, this person who speaks, is a man who is witness to everything that has happened at the crucifixion. From the time that Jesus left Pilate's palace, this man has been with Jesus. There has not been a moment, there has not been a second of time that this man has not been right there. He has heard every word spoken by Jesus. He has seen every breath that Jesus takes. Note what we are told, that the man is facing Jesus. He is watching. He is watching with intensity what is happening. He's taking it in. He's hearing the cat calls. He's heard the exchange between the robbers and Jesus. He's heard Jesus talk to his mother and talk to John. He's lived through the three hours of darkness. You know, one wonders how many people actually were there for the whole duration of this. How many people actually stuck it out and were alive to tell it? But this man has witnessed it all. This man says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The second thing to note is not only the person speaking, but the one he spoke of. Who is he talking about? Well, think about this, because, you know, I know, I know we know the answer is Jesus, okay? But, but just think about it, who he has just made this statement about. Truly, this man 
was the Son of God. Who's he talking about? Somebody who's in a big parade? Somebody who's coming in with, with purple clothes on in a, in a huge, huge chariot with a crown? Someone who's descending from heaven on clouds. Someone who has angels galore surrounding him. Someone who, when challenge come down from the cross, tore himself off that cross and came down. No. He makes the statement, truly, this man was the Son of God, about a man he just crucified. That's quite a, that, that's quite a, a statement to be made about someone you've just driven nails into. It's quite a statement about one who has been mocked and mocked and mocked and mocked. Someone who, who you watched get a, get a whipping back before you took him away. Someone that you saw stumble carrying the weight of the cross so badly and that, that you have to move this thing along, that you got to pick out somebody from the crowd to finish the job. This weakling. This man who has physically exhausted himself. This man who, who has cried out only seven times from the cross. This sufferer. This sufferer. The man who through parched lips, through swollen tongue, has barely got the words out, I thirst. Quite something to, to stand there and to look at this one and to say, truly, this man was the Son of God. But it's more than that, isn't it? What did we read happened? Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He's talking not about just one that's on a cross being crucified. Not just about a man who is being mocked. Not just about somebody that he has witnessed suffer. He's talking about a dead man. Jesus is dead. There's no life left in this body. His head has drooped. The, the chest is no longer heaving. Death has taken place. Death has occurred. He knows this. He's trained. He's watching. He's standing there looking at Jesus. A dead man. And he says of the dead man, truly, this was the Son of God. A statement to be made. 
does all this mean? Well, actually, if we scan the, the Gospels, we find out there are two statements that this man makes. Mark only records one of them, and that is this statement that I've been repeating. Luke records for us another statement of this man. Luke says that when the centurion looked at Jesus, after Jesus has died, the centurion says, this man was innocent. This man was just. Or we could translate it, this man was righteous. We've heard somebody else at Golgotha say something like that, haven't we? We heard one of those thieves turn to the other thief and say to him, we're here justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Luke tells us that this man who is in charge of this execution looks upon Jesus and says, this man was innocent. The second statement that comes out then as well is this one that Mark records. Now, I, I know some of you are footnote readers. All right? So let's deal with the footnote. His statement is, truly this man was the son of God. Now, if you look down at your footnote, the footnote says that perhaps a son. So then it comes out, truly this man was a son of God. Now, I've kind of pondered this, and you know, you read different commentaries and they go back and forth. But it would seem to me to be very odd for the Gospels to record the statement of a man in reaction to the cross to say, yeah, this man was a son of God. Three of the Gospels tell us about this man. They want us to know the reaction of this man. And although the word could be translated in that way, I think what is happening is this. The Holy Spirit is leading and guiding Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to, to come to the conclusion, this man meant this. Yes, it can be translated this way, but this is what the man meant. See, it's not like we're just left with the statement, right? That, that these, these men are, are getting back and, and having repeated to them. We, we have somebody else involved in this verse, in how this verse comes to us. And it comes to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who what? Who knew the man's heart. The Holy Spirit who had the exact words that he desired in the text, put in the text. Truly this man was the Son of God. 
What an amazing statement. See, there was more than just a thief who's converted at the cross. There's a centurion. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know the story. Oh, various books and fictional accounts are given. Maybe some of those fictional accounts include some historic truth. But we don't know. What Scripture, what the Holy Spirit wants us to know, is what this man said. Because he's speaking the truth. Out of a heart that sees the innocent one and declares him to be the Son of God. Now, I know if we were to examine that statement, and we, we would probably theologically, especially in our Reformed way of, of parsing all of these things down, we'd say, boy, you know, I'm not sure that really qualifies, does it? Well, I'm not, I'm not so sure theologically with all of our doctrine, the thief on the cross saying, Hey, leave him alone. He hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, really qualifies for all that we think needs to go into a conversion statement either. But I have the assurance of God's word that Jesus said to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. It seems like the statement was good enough for Jesus. But you say, we don't have any confirmation of that with the centurion. No. Jesus is dead. The confirmation is the fact that we have it recorded in Scripture. This is Jesus' confirmation. This is Jesus looking at this man and saying, he has confessed my innocence. He knows that I am righteous. He knows that I am holy. And he knows that I am son of God. Based upon his limited knowledge of what is taking place, put it in the book. But you know, God's word always clarifies things for us. Never leaves us hanging. We are not thieves on the cross. We are not Roman centurions who have but a scant bit of information about Jesus. We are those who have loads of information. And if we don't have enough, all we need to do is type the name Jesus into a computer and we'll get tons more information, more than we could ever have. In fact, Scripture tells us that if all, if everything that Jesus did were written down, all the books 
in the world could not contain that information. It's quite a statement. But you see, God's word goes on to define what does it take. Philippian jailer is about to take his life. The call comes out from the cell. Don't do that. We're all here. The man, humbled by the experience, comes to Paul in prison. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The thief on the cross, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we have good assurances from God's word he did. And so he was saved. Does the centurion? Seems to believe. Seems to know and understand. A few moments ago when we were at the table, the reminder to us when we come to this table is to take, eat, and believe. Believe what? In my goodness? No. Believe in who I am and what I can do? No. Take, eat. And believe in Jesus Christ. We take the cup and we say, take, drink, and believe. Believe what? That the blood of Jesus was given for a complete remission of all of our sins. Believe. Not just do the act. Believe what the act symbolizes and you shall be saved there was a lot of silence around the cross as Jesus bows his head and dies but one man's voice is heard this was an innocent man, truly. He was the Son of God. Do you believe? Do you believe? The one who died on the cross was a righteous, holy man. Dying for your sins. Do you believe that this was the divine Son of God, having come down and taken upon himself flesh? He died for your sins. Do you believe? We were not there some 2,000 years ago. 
We can't go back and recreate the moment. But we can stand. We can stand as we live our lives from day to day. And we can say, I believe. I believe that Jesus died to set me free. I believe Jesus paid it all. And that all to him I owe. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. in which we hear the voice of a Roman centurion calling out at the cross. The only voice. But that's the only thing that is needed to believe in Jesus Christ. The one necessary For salvation. Thank you. For opening our eyes. To that glorious truth. In his name we pray. And God's people say. Amen.